0: You're fellow redeemed, Um, we consider especially the questions that were submitted and they are listed for you there. Um, If you're looking at your bulletin on page four, there's a point at the bottom where it says contact pastor if you'd like to copy the slides from today. Um, I'll revise that just a little bit to say let me know if you want more written detail on the things that I talk about Uh, because I didn't include as much detail as I originally anticipated when I made this bulletin. So just let me know if you want more on any of this. We are going to get started. As you can see, there's a little bit of a progression um, from the rather simple question number one and two to a little bit more involved question number 11. Here goes. Uh, First one, Pastor Hagen, will we have the Wells Connection again? (laughs) Yes. Um, One of the things that we wanted to do this year is have a little bit greater awareness of our work as a church body, or work as a Synod, and we send about 8%, we send 8% of all of our offering receipts um, to the Synod for our congregational mission offering, and the Wells Connection is a very straightforward way to kind of keep us updated on what's going on in our Synod and our church body. Um, The biggest question right now is, Pastor just has to figure out a little bit on the hardware side so that we can have a projector here and the sound from up there, Um, but that should be ready for September. Easy easy. peasy. Second one, where did you meet Desiree? (laughs) Desiree, I'm going to put one in here about about us. Um, I met her during my vicar year at Cross of Life Lutheran Church in Mississauga, Ontario. Um, She was a Sunday school teacher there. I was the single vicar who just got assigned there. Um, I was like 24 at the time. And um, yeah, so that's coming up on 12, 13 years ago. If you want more detail, she loves (laughs) just ask her now we start to get in past uh, kind of the slightly more into the slightly more challenging. Um, are our pets going to be with us in heaven? And as somebody, you know, we, we have a dog. We've we've lost dogs and um, had dogs. You know, had to put dogs down. Um, this is one question that kind of strikes home. And when we think about this, there's a couple of things. There's first of all that Jesus became human to save humans. But then secondly, that Jesus redeems all of creation. And then finally, thirdly, think of um, maybe the end of Isaiah and some of the imagery that God uses for what is heaven going to be like. The lion will lie down with the lamb. The child will play by the viper's pit sort of thing. And so the, the best answer that I can have is there will probably be animals in heaven, not necessarily your favorite fight. But also that that means that you're not going to be lacking. You won't be like, man, I love being in heaven. I only wish my dog were here to enjoy it with me. Um, but the reality, rather the reality of being in heaven will be will be wonderful and overwhelming and great, whether it's your specific dog there or not. Um, the one that I that I did include here from Romans 8. We you know that the whole creation has been groaning as the pains of childbirth, that if all creation is laboring under, um, under bondage to sin, then maybe it is also, at least, you know, Jesus came to save, to redeem all creation. And the imagery that we have for, for heaven it's a, is that it's basically the Garden of Eden again, uh, the Garden of Eden reborn. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's about where we end up. You know, we have a lot of imagery about animals in heaven, um, so there will probably be animals in heaven because it's kind of described like this garden of Eden. Whether it's your specific dog, whether it's our know Arzina, Zeal or Zebulun, whoever it was, I hope Zebby's so. not there. He was very high, high energy. Um, whether it's your specific dog, is you know nobody can say for sure, but whether your pet will be there or not, your experience of heaven will be fantastic. Now we start to, uh, how about this one? Are there any expectations, what did I say, that a called worker doesn't or shouldn't visit somewhere they previously served? Or that a called worker should remain in touch with the previous church? Good question. This is now the third church I've served at as a pastor. Um, Served at St. Paul in Ottawa. We are not going back there because it's like eight hours that way. Or more. It's, It's a long way away. It's probably 12 hours from here. Um, I also served at Shepherd of the Lakes in Fairmont, Minnesota, and you know the people are wonderful, but there's nothing else to go back to Minnesota for. Um, it's not exactly you know high on our vacation destination list. Um, so then this question: there there isn't any you know specific rule or expectation aside from the expectation to be professional. That when you think of um, When you think of the pastoral office, that it is, by and large, a professional job. Um, In the same way that, I even make some comparisons sometimes to other professional jobs. Like somebody would say, do you want me to call you Pastor Peter or Pastor Hayden? And my response is, well, what do you call your doctor? Do you call him Dr. John or Dr. Smith? Well, Dr. Smith. You go down to Texas, you might call him Dr. John. And so by comparison, um, I sometimes draw a comparison to another professional job like that, to say, well, maybe that's the standard for, for conduct. Um, and in some senses, that a pastor isn't just like a professional job like your, your GP, um, but it's somebody who wants to get involved in your life and who is there on um, some of the happiest moments and some of the most heartbreaking moments of your life. And it's not quite fair to a new guy if you're still hanging around. I think that's where I end up. Um, that that pastor, the, the new pastor at that church, is the pastor with responsibility for those people. And it wouldn't be fair to say, you know, I served there for like, 5, 10, 15 years, and I'm just going to show up every now and then. Um, it's not really fair to the new guy first. And then secondly, the relationship does change a little bit after 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 you move on. Because you aren't their pastor. Um, so I guess in answer to this, there's nothing nothing against being in touch with people who, you know, had been there previously, um, you know, Facebook friends with a number of people from different churches and uh, and talk with them on a page. Um, I think there is a little bit of that professional distance to say, you know, I'm not your pastor anymore, I'm still a pastor, but you have a pastor and you should talk to him. And so when somebody, you know, from a previous church text me with a question, Pastor, this is what's going on, you know the people, you know what's happened, um, and what should we do, I normally have like one or two sentences in reply, and then I say, go talk to your pastor, or go talk to your vacancy pastor, whoever it is, because I don't want to get in between that relationship between the church and the people. Five. How do you choose the readings and prayers for each Sunday? Let me set this down so I don't keep doing that. Number five. How do you choose the readings and prayers for each Sunday? Do you have specific people or specific situations in mind? Um, the rest of the questions said basically a lot of what we just talked about in church seemed like you had something very specific in mind. Um, so if you go to pages viii, Roman numeral eight and nine, um, in front of your hymnal. We have something that we follow that's called a lectionary. A lectionary is a series of readings. Um, and so the readings, and we have three different, three different cycles. We have a reading set for year A, and then we go to year B, and then we go to year C. So each has a, an Old Testament reading, or first reading, a second reading, a gospel reading, and then a psalm. So we've got readings picked for like the next three years, and then you just repeat the cycle ad nauseum. Year A we look at the Gospel of Matthew, year B we look at the Gospel of Mark, and then year C we look at the Gospel of Luke. And so right now we're reading from Matthew, we are in year A, when it goes to Advent, then it'll be year B. So the readings are set, Um, and and that just kind of goes in a cycle. uh, (laughs) One thing you might notice is that during the summertime, the season of Pentecost, um, if you look at the Sunday preview sheet, we typically look at the church, um, specific teachings that Jesus has to say toward his church, his people, um, as opposed to specific events in Jesus' life. So starting in Advent, we're looking at like John Baptist, the birth of Jesus at Christmas, Epiphany, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. Um, then after Pentecost, when it's all green up front, then we have you know, Jesus' specific teachings on these things. So that answers the the reading side. How do you choose the prayers for each Sunday? Um, The Missouri Synod has followed the same schedule of readings and they they produce like a series of prayers. Like you just download a Word document and it's got three different versions of the same prayer and then I just copy and paste the ones that we have space for. Um, And so even the prayers are mostly set um, and I modify them, you know, very little, like I change capitalization. And, um, and maybe if they had a different reading, I, I leave one of those petitions out and, uh, and choose something else instead. And so if somebody's like, well, Pastor Hagan, it looks like you had something very specific in mind. I, I would say, uh, no. <laughs> Other than what always happens among God's people. That God is the one who, um, who applies his word to your life and mind. And, and yes, in our prayers, we do add to that, like if somebody's having surgery or recovering or something like that, obviously then we'll have specific prayers. Any questions so far? All right, next one. Who wrote the Gospel of John, the Letters of John, and the Book of Revelation? I hear different ideas about authorship. So the um, if you remember, remember the King James Version, I think it's in there, Um, if you look at the heading um, for the book of Revelation, it says the revelation of St. John the Divine, and there is a, I don't know where it came from, and a long-standing idea that John of Revelation is different from John the disciple, and all that we have from scripture and from even his own words is that John the disciple, like Peter, James, and John wrote the Gospel of John the letters of John and the Revelation of John same John, same guy Um, he wrote them after everybody else he was the one who lived to uh, around the year 90 or 95 Um, and so Mark was written fairly early, around 45 50-ish, Matthew around probably 55 and Luke around 55 or 60 Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all written very early on. John kind of comes along about 30 years later and writes his gospel. And he fills in the gaps. And so you'll notice in the Gospel of John that he doesn't emphasize the sort of things that the other gospels do. That there's no reference to the Lord's Supper in the Gospel of John. But we have three and a half chapters of what Jesus said on that night. Uh, So Gospel of John, Apostle John, uh, Letters of John, and the book of Revelation all the same. After, after his time as an apostle, then John was a pastor near Ephesus. Um, and He was eventually exiled to Patmos. And you'll see references to both of those things in his letters and in the book of Revelation. If the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts when we hear the word, why are believing adults baptized? Good question. Um, And I think by analogy, this one is fairly straightforward. If you just replace that. If the Holy Spirit has come to your heart when you were brought to faith through hearing the word, why do adults go to the Lord's Supper? It's the exact same thing. That God uses a physical, um, physical means to convey his gospel truth. It's not simply the conveying of a set of information but it is God working through that gospel in order to strengthen faith. And so whether a person has faith or not, Jesus, you know, that's kind of the secondary point, Jesus said be baptized. And if somebody's like, well, Pastor Hagen, I already believe, but I don't want to be baptized, that's, that raises a different question about why not? Um, but the reality that faith comes from hearing and that faith is strengthened through the sacraments is something that we hold to. So we say, well, you are a believer, and you're going to make your confession and join our congregation right here. And what a blessing that God wants to strengthen your faith in a tangible, physical way, where there's, there's no doubt. There's water on my head, and God's promise is attached there. So there is no doubt about my strength of faith. But I know that God actually did this for me. This is a question that's been lingering for a while, probably since um, Memorial Day of 2019. Can I have communion over YouTube? Um, and then the two that kind of go along with that. Um, why do we have communion so often? And can I commune myself, or could a pastor commune himself? And there's one answer for all of this, I suppose, is that communion is a fellowship meal and it is centered around Jesus. That the fellowship we share in Holy Communion doesn't depend on the relationship around the table so much as the relationship through the table. That we have fellowship together because of the Jesus who is at the center, so he's like the hub, and then the spokes of the wheel around that. That we have fellowship and are united together because of this Jesus at the center. So can I have communion over YouTube? Um, the short answer is no. The, the snarky answer is you can have virtual communion as long as you eat virtual food. <laughs> um, the, the, the longer answer is well, God, God actually gives you his forgiveness in a very tangible means again. And having communion over you two um, creates a doubt for you should be. It creates worry. Well, did I actually do this well enough? Do I have to use this kind of wine or that kind of bread? Um, additionally on top of that then would be the question of how do you actually exercise a fellowship because you can't have fellowship together unless it is necessarily excluded from outsiders that's close communion Whether you emphasize the positive um, that we have fellowship together but the only way we have fellowship together is when outsiders are not part of that same eating and drinking and so the there's no way to have closed communion over YouTube if that is something that people wanted to practice. Um, and why do we have it so often? I think my answer um, was kind of like if you, if you use the analogy of, of a marriage. Um, usually it's, Pastor, if we have it so often, then it's just not as special. I've heard that, you've heard that. And, uh, and my answer, okay, try that one with your, with your spouse. Say, I'll, I'm only going to tell you one time a year that I love you, because it's more special that way. And here in the sacrament, the, the the bridegroom meets with his church to say that he loves her, and to convey to you and to me forgiveness of sins. And on top of that, um, that the idea that God actually works through his means of grace, this physical thing, is unique among Christianity. And so we as Christians want to celebrate this um, because, number one, Jesus gives us his blessing. And then number two, because it's part of our confession that we are different from the churches who say it doesn't matter. We say it does matter because Jesus is here in body and in blood. And because there's also certainty that Jesus works through this means of grace. It's a physical, tangible thing. Um, and so, you know, can I commune myself? Could a pastor commune himself? No, uh, because it is a fellowship meal. Even when um, when our elders or Pastor Hagen visits a shut-in, um, there's one who is the officiant, you know, take and eat, and one who receives. So there's two people here, even though the pastor is uh, likely not communing um, when he visits his shut was Jesus married if not could the wedding at Cana have been that of brother or sister uh, no Jesus was not married um, otherwise he would be shirking all of his responsibilities by having no, no place to lay his head um, by pursuing his, his mission and getting himself crucified and then not even caring for this supposed wife at the cross when he he instead cares for his mother you know here is your dear woman here is your son dear you know, friend here is your mother Um, Together with that, in John 2, Jesus was invited to a wedding at Fairmont. Uh, So when you got married, you probably didn't get an invitation in the mail. Oh, I should go to this wedding, because it's my wedding. Jesus was invited, Um, so it's not his wedding. Could the wedding at Cana have been that of a brother or sister? Uh, Possibly. If you qualify that as a half-brother or sister, um, in that Jesus possibly, probably, had half-siblings who had the same mother, but obviously a different father. They had Joseph as a father. Jesus did not have a human father. Um, He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so any siblings that he has would have only been half-siblings, even though Joseph was the legal guardian of some God. (coughs) Maybe this one, how many more do we have? We are right on track. Um, 10. What is our relationship to Thrivent? Together with that, could we or should we make use of their action teams? And then for my personal needs, should Thrive receive preference over similar, more secular companies? Um, the relationship to Out uh, started as aid association for Lutherans. Um, at least half of it did. Um, boy. I don't know exactly when they started actually. Uh, but it started at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Appleton, Wisconsin. So if you knew Pastor um, Schrum up at Riga, the church in Riga, he is now a pastor at the church that started AAL. A- uh, Aid Association for Lutherans is set up as a fraternal benefit society. So it's basically a credit union for insurance, where you are a part owner of this, and they have some regulations that they can't make a substantial profit, but rather they have to distribute these funds in a charitable way. So it's kind of a hybrid um, of like a credit union and a nonprofit, And so as part of that, they they distribute money to all sorts of organizations um, for different purposes because they are legally bound to do so by their charter. So then question A, should we or could we make use of the Thrivent action teams? Perhaps you're familiar with this, perhaps not, that you can apply to Thrivent, and if you wear their shirts and take their, their picture, then they'll give you a gift card for $250. And any thriving member can apply for, I don't know, two, three, four of these in a calendar year. And so that's potentially, you know, a substantial amount of funds that would be available. The question on letter A is a question of should we, a question of stewardship, where we wouldn't want to build a ministry on, um, on outside funds. 'Cause then all of a sudden the policy changes there or the market goes goes down and Thrive and says, sorry, we can't do this anymore and then all of a sudden there's this overextended ministry that the congregation never had to tend to plan their ministry, the congregation never had to um, pay for their ministry, but it just instead just said, Well, Thrive will give us the money, so we'll just do something with it. And I think that is a that is a dangerous place to be. Um, where you get overextended because of these outside funds. Um, And then secondly, that that Thrive that says, you wear the shirts, you send us a picture so that we can print it, and then we've got pictures from us, pictures from that church and that church and that other organization, all of them, um, that in a sense, it looks like we all live generously. When it would be so much more profitable say, and better for a congregation if if they had their own shirts that they wore, and and their own people who said, you know what, even if we aren't getting a $250 check from them, I can invite my neighbor to church. Um, Because they use that for straight-up marketing, and I'm not willing to to sell my soul just so that I can get a gift card for $250. Um, And so, should we make use of their action, action teams? I think they do have a place. Where if you think to yourself, you know, here is here's a new idea I'd like to try, so we don't have it in the budget, then apply for an action team and, and you can do it this year. If you want to do it again, you know, at zero cost to the congregation. If you want to do it again, then we'll build it into the budget for the next year. Um, and so that that idea of, of using an action team money to try a new idea rather than to sustain ongoing regular ministry. Uh, finally, for my personal needs, should Thrive and Perceive preference over similar, more secular companies? No. Um, put them on the same level as every other life insurance company. Look at their bond rating. Uh, don't say, but, you know, my, my, my neighbor growing up was a salesman for AAL. He was. <laughs> um, don't give them any more preference. Just look at them the exact same way that you would with any other insurance or investment company and compare on that basis because um, if, if you're familiar with marketing, you've probably heard the term greenwashing, which is where all the companies want to make themselves look as green and eco-friendly, environmentally friendly as they, as they can. Uh, Thrivent, um, especially over the last 10 years, is guilty of what I'd say, I don't know, crosswashing, where they, they want to attach Christian and make it appear as this is a Christian choice, that Christians go to this company for their needs. Um, cross-washing, then you kind of see that it's it's really just a marketing ploy. There's nothing you need to be Christian about an insurance company. So if you if you don't like some of their policies or the way they're managing things, then move somewhere else, um, the same as you would with any other choice or any other company. Finally, the most involved question, and I've got four minutes on this one, <laughs> I'm worried that our church body with a strong stance on the Bible is more and more out of step with society. I'm okay with that part. But I'm concerned that a poor reputation may develop and someone won't even listen to what I have to say because they've heard about one or another part of our teaching such as creation, marriage, divorce, you name it. Um, All of these hot-button secular issues. Um, A, do we have an image problem? Or B, do we have a Bible problem? we're reading so much into the Bible without seeing the people that Jesus wants us to witness to. And let us see, are there any dangers to being super biblical in the time of cultural drifting away from scripture? I'll take these into A, B, and C. Do we have an image problem? <laughs> um, this, was, this was from a pastor about 45 years ago. He said, you know, the Wisconsin Synod is the best product on the shelf. And, you know, if it were something in the grocery store, it would be. Tastiest, it'll be the most nourishing, and it's got the worst packaging, and the worst advertising, and the worst name. Um, and so, you know, not much has changed over the last 45 years. Um, that, by and large, you know, we are the Wells, the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod, and you know how much effort it takes to explain that. To, well, why are you in Ohio <laughs> when there's a W in your name? But we are a state that isn't cold. Um, that is a challenge. Um, do we have an image problem? I think, together with that, that there's... You can't separate that from the secular problem, that the ability to read and think deeply about a topic without jumping to a rash conclusion is, um, is a challenge for our society at large. It's much easier to just get enraged and, uh, and get all upset about something rather than give it some thought and discuss it. So do we have an image problem? Um, Yes, maybe, (laughs) that hasn't changed in a long time. But at the same time, you can't talk about image without talking about the society around you. And so does society have and use the tools of human reason to do the best that they can in having a discussion? Um, I would say no. More on that in our quarterly meeting. Number two do we have a Bible problem where we read so much into the Bible without seeing the people? that Jesus wants us to witness to. Um, this is one of the books that I'm, that I'm reading right now, um, basically asking the question, why do so many churches with poor theology, why are, does it seem that so many of them are much more forward and open about their faith than those who have good theology? And where i like to summarize this is um, kind of the, the balance between people and passages. That we have love for people and we have love for passages. And we have love for people and we have love for the Word of God. Um, and it's very easy for that to get out of whack. To say, you know, I, I love my Bible so much and all those people are wrong and they are all bad. to um, hell. Or, to get out of whack the other way, I love people so much and the Bible just makes things more challenging, more difficult to witness to them. And I can't really love people when I've got a Bible sitting in the way. Um, that I think that, that contrast between people and passages is is perhaps helpful, and there's a little bit of alliteration there. The other idea is um, is one that I'll bring out in letter C. Are there any dangers to being super biblical in a time of cultural drifting away? Potentially, and the danger is. Um, we just had a comparison of people in passages, and I'll use the same same imagery, that Martin Luther said um, that churches are kind of of like a a drunken man trying to ride a horse. (laughs) He had had many vivid imagery, and this is actually one of his less vivid, but he said, you know, the man is driving home after a long night, and he falls off one side of the horse, and then he gets up, and then he falls off the other side. And the way he described that was that the proper way is right in the middle without falling off to one or to the other. The two dangers that we see would be falling off into the side of license or falling off into the other side of legalism. So license says the Bible doesn't matter, the passages don't matter, and you can just do whatever you want because God is God of love. The legalism side says you need to live a good moral life and And if you don't live properly, then you're going to get it. License says the law doesn't matter. Legalism basically says the gospel doesn't matter. License says that we can do whatever we want. Legalism says there's a strict code, but if you live up to it, then you're just fine. That is like a two-minute discussion on a super long topic. Um, and so are there any dangers in being super biblical in a time of cultural drifting away? Um, yes. The first danger is um, adjusting ourselves to the culture and saying, you know what? God doesn't care about that anymore. The other danger is to grow inwardly so much that all we have is this little group of Christians who don't know any, any people outside of the Christian faith and who are just concerned about making sure that everybody Acts properly, lives properly, and lives up to what God demands of them. License and legalism, I think, would be the the two the two dangers. And so the the middle road is to is to see that God wants us to communicate His word to people. So that means we need to know the word, and we need to know the people, and um, and we need to try to communicate this in a way that we have a God of of love who's also a God of justice and a Savior who took your sin and mine upon Him where we don't dismiss God's law and we don't dismiss the reality of God's gospel I think that got us through pretty much all of them any final questions or additions, clarifications again let me know if you want a little bit of a write-up or a summary of those bullet points I've um, been